The fifth Bioceuticals Research Symposium will be held from the 21st to the 23rd of April 2017 in Sydney. This promises to be another sellout event. For more information, including registration, go to the Education tab at bioceuticals.com.au. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining me on the line today is Cindy O'Meara, who's a nutritionist, best-selling author, international speaker, and founder of Changing Habits. But she's not your typical nutritionist. Cindy disagrees with low-fat, calorie-counting diets. She believes chocolate can be good for you and thinks cheating and eating yummy foods is an important part of a well-balanced diet, and I already love her. Cindy must be doing something right because she maintains a healthy weight and has never in her whole life taken an antibiotic, painkiller or any other form of medication. Cindy graduated with a Bachelor of Science majoring in nutrition from Deakin University in 1984. Her special interest was ancestral foods. At the end of her degree, she was so disillusioned by the nutritional guidelines that she paved her own path and stayed clear of the low-fat diets of the day and not without controversy. Her groundbreaking book, Changing Habits, Changing Lives, became an instant bestseller, and from there she's grown a successful organic food company, certified online education program, and groundbreaking documentary. Cindy is about educating. Her greatest love is to teach people in order for them to make better choices in their life so they too can enjoy greater health throughout their life. Her unique, surprisingly simple and down-to-earth approach challenges and encourages others to eliminate unhealthy habits and has inspired thousands to make smarter choices about the food they choose to put into their body. Welcome, Cindy. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Andrew. Now, Cindy, I've got to say, we've, we've had a chat just briefly beforehand and there's a little bit of a, bit of a tie there in a couple of geographical areas. <laughs> um, yeah. Tell me about your beginning. Like, you're from Bendigo. What inspired you to learn about nutrition? Tell me about your education and, and where along that line, where along that course did you lose faith in, in what was being taught? Well, I think it was the way I was brought up. I was brought up by a father who was a pharmacist who after six years of dishing out medications and realising they weren't working, just creating more problems. And this was back in the 50s. He was way ahead of his time. Wow, yeah. Uh, Yeah, he became a chiropractor, went to the USA, became a chiropractor, met my mother over there and um, came back to Australia. And my mum was uh, from a, a farming family. She was the oldest of 11. She cooked everything from scratch. My dad was of the philosophy of vitalism, which is that we just don't look at one organ. We look at the whole body, the connections within that body, the connections to other people, the the earth, the, the moon, the stars. He was he was in the sixties, um, probably your your typical hippie. It didn't look like one, you know. He looked very conservative. Mm. So I think it was my upbringing that really. Um, I paved the way, and I knew that I wanted to do something with health, but I didn't want to be a chiropractor. I didn't want to follow in my father's steps, yeah. and, and I wanted to ski, so I ended up going to the U.S. Uh, and went to the University of Colorado, and I actually did a year there 
where I did cultural anthropology, and that's what got me interested in nutrition. Right. It wasn't, you know, it was like, I want to be a dietitian. That's what I want to be. So came back to Australia and did the degree. But after doing cultural anthropology and ancestral foods and doing understanding my father's philosophy and my, you know, what my mum did with cooking, and I was being told to use margarine, low-fat, uh, you know, mm. all of these medical feeds that I looked at like Sustagen and I, I, I was just horrified and I thought, I can't become a dietitian. I can't. I don't even agree with any of this. Not knowing that I could go off on my own and do my own thing, went back to university, did two more years where I cut up cadavers. I wanted to know more about the human body. And at the end of cutting up cadavers and doing all pathology, histology, embryology, I went, you know what? After this many years of university, I actually know what nutrition is important for the human body. And so I did. I went off on my own um, way and, and started to teach in 1984 uh, to my clients how to eat real foods. So that was, you know, back in 1984, I was saying go back to butter, let's not do low fat, let's have a look at how these foods are produced, go and find the best quality. And and I think what really got me was I had a farmer that came in um, and I was a young 24-year-old. He was in his 70s. He was in a lot of pain. He um, his, his leg was numb and no one was helping him. So his daughter sent him in to me. Yeah. And I spoke to him for an hour. He had his arms and legs crossed and I was quite intimidated by him. And um, he was a farmer that had come from Shepparton to Melbourne. And about uh, a week after he left, I didn't think he was going to listen to me. And about a week after he left, he rang me and he said, Miss Lovett, because that was my my name, (laughs) I want to speak to you. And I'm thinking, oh gosh, you know. So he came down and he saw me and he said, I want to tell you a story. He said, I'm a pear farmer. Five years ago, I realized that my pears were the worst. I need to use every chemical, every spray, everything on them in order for them to even, you know, sprout and be pears. Mm. So I decided to go back to my old ways. And what I did was I cleaned up my farm. I got rid of all the chemicals. I pruned all my trees. Five years later, I had the best pears in the district. Wow. And he said, what an idiot I was that I didn't do it to my own body. He says, I'm going to do everything that you told me. Wow. So... You know, that that got me even more into the agricultural side and the production side of our food because of that man. And I remember his name. His name was Mr. Rutherford. So, yeah, he was a integral part of my life. Um, Shout yeah. out and to Mr. Rutherford. And there were many others. Yeah, Mr. Rutherford. He wouldn't, I don't think he'd be alive, you know, like I'm 56 now, so that was 30 years ago. He'd have to be 100 and something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I um, I also came from a family that, um, my mum was the oldest of 11, seven were boys, six were hemophiliac. And they were in the middle of the chemical revolution where DDT was being sprayed um, as well. As, that was the 40s. And in the 30s, they sprayed arsenic and um, I think it was lead. It was arsenic and lead that they sprayed mm-hmm. on a plague of locusts. And my mother, you know, was in amongst all of this. All the chemicals were being sprayed on her. And I look at that whole family, and they've all died young, you know, of some sort of disability, AIDS, as far as the hemophilia goes. But my mum, you know, she was, um, she died of lung cancer. My sister, who was born in Iowa, um, and and the firstborn, she died of CREST, which is an acronym for five autoimmune diseases. So 
I think that's what's really pushed me is that I have a really pathetic genetic potential. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Really pathetic. And I wanted to see how could I be the best that I can be without, you know, being a slave to my genes. Mm, mm. And, And so I did everything I could possibly do in order to be the best version of myself, given that my father gave me a great start. My mom, you know, cooked everything from scratch. And, and, and I guess that's, that's the really thing that, that propels me is that it was about me being the best and understanding how I could be the best, giving that to my children. And then the next was my mother's group and then the local paper and then a book and now a movie. So I think it's wow. about me learning and then just spreading that knowledge. Yeah. i I, I got to say, Cindy, when I was nursing, when I was learning nursing, you would have been one of those different people in the class. And there were a couple that I would have laughed at going, ha ha, you hippie, well, I'm learning the true way. And it was only, it was like it was over a decade later that I, like I used to actually hassle somebody, um, a friend whose who's, um, girlfriend was basically a, a naturopath and I used to hassle him about it. And it was years later, a decade later, when I had to go cap in hand and apologise most humbly for my arrogance. What interests me is that it's, it's these different thinkers that they, they, they're ridiculed at the time. And then later, of course, it's, oh, we know that. Of course we know that. That's scientific fact. <laughs> now, I guess the thing is that along the way, there is going to be some idiots who are just idiots. But your stuff, the thing that you've done has now been validated by countless studies, including hardcore studies like the Sydney Diet Heart, what is it, the Sydney Diet Heart Study, mm. you know, that's that's basically saying, no, these decades of omega-6 fatty acids that we've been preaching is wrong. There's no benefit. <laughs> so, like, where you must have copped a lot of ridicule. <laughs> hey, I still cop ridicule. <laughs> Like, I think there's a page dedicated to me and they just absolutely slander anything that I say. Um, But you know what? That's okay. I'm not there to change those guys. I'm there to change the people that really want to be changed. And the health insurance companies, you know, they're multi-billion dollar companies and they've figured out there are three types of people that can be insured on, on or in Australia on this planet. The first one is people like me who do everything right. They eat right. They they exercise every day. They have sunshine. They do everything they can possibly do to be the healthiest version of themselves. Then there's the people that they're trying, but they're not getting there, but they're open to suggestion and to education. And then there's the ones that just go, I'll smoke and I'll drink and I'll do drugs or do whatever I want. I'm not doing anything to change. So the health insurance companies have decided there are only two groups that they want to insure, and that's the top two groups, not that third group. They don't want them. And I don't want them either Mm. because they don't want to change. There's no point in me even considering trying to get to that group because they're just hard work and, and in the end they just ridicule. It's the group that are open to suggestion, hey, perhaps you have this autoimmune disease and perhaps, I don't know if you've seen the latest scientific um, research on it, but there's a link to gluten or there's a link to glyphosate or there's a link to whatever that link might be. And then they go, oh, tell me more. Yeah. I, I want to, you know, I want, I don't want to be on these drugs for the rest of my life. I actually want to be 
the best version of myself. But I don't know what to do. And and I think that's part of it. As long as you can back up what your what your claims are with some basis in in science in the literature to say no 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 it's it's further than what you're being told by the media and and you know the machine if you like of commercialism it's it's more than this have a look at this that i think is the responsible sort of thing way to go for a practitioner um you know like i get in, indeed you know a, a friend of my wife got caught up in nothing less than charlatanism when she was you know treating herself quote unquote with cancer um despite my protestations um, that she should be seeking medical help and, and using natural medicines to support her body. Um, but so she got caught up on this sort of bandwagon. It was almost like a false hope, a sort of last grasp at, grasp at hope. But where you can validate something and say, no, 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 look at this. You know, there is some stuff. There is some basis in this. You know, Goodman Fielders are not going to prom promote this because it doesn't sell tip-top bread. <laughs> you know what I mean? That, yeah, that's, yeah. I think, the responsible thing. And this is where you've come from, you know. You, I mean, you're obviously passionate about food, uh, but you go more into just it's just food. You go from sourcing it, you know, where do you get the good food from? And I think this is a major hurdle that a lot of people come across. So let's chat about that for a tick. Where do you, for most of the people who need this stuff, how do they source good, wholesome food? Oh, you know, it depends on where you live, but I do know people who are so committed to their health that no matter what, they'll do it. Mm. So I have a friend who lives on 1.5 million acres in the middle of Queensland, and, and the way she gets this food is she has a garden. You know, and so I think a herb garden, a veggie, like just a little veggie patch, the old-fashioned yep. way we used to do things, is a really good way of sourcing good quality food because you know exactly the production of it. Yeah. Another one is our farmers markets. Going and talking to our farmers, more and more there are, are farmers out there that are not giving their produce to um, the big supply chains, but rather going, I can make more money by going to the local farmers markets because mm. everybody's seeking a better quality of food. Now mm. they may not be organically certified, but at least I can say to you, no, I don't spray such and such a herbicide or pesticide. This is what I do do. Um, and so you're knowledgeable on that. So, you know, I think that that's the next place to get it. And I've just found a beautiful place here on the Sunshine Coast. And um, it's a shop that finds backyard growers who have a real keen interest in chemical-free and organic as they sell to her and then she sells to to us. So, I, you know, there are people out there that don't want to be gardeners, and so these are really good alternatives. But if I, back in the, you know, the 80s when I first started this, I would just say to people, well, at least start eating fruits and vegetables. <laughs> you know, get off your breads and your breakfast cereals and your pastas and your muffins and your cakes, and let's just start eating fruits and vegetables. And I'd send them to anywhere to get them because at least that was a, a start. Mm. But, for, but now I'm just finding from the 80s to now, that doesn't cut it anymore. We are in such a predicament with health uh, and crisis with our, our health because I think of a generational effect and an epi, uh, genetic effect that uh, we have to go that one step further. And if somebody is in crisis, they're going to have to seek out the best food. Yeah. If you're not in crisis, then maybe you know we can do it slowly, but... Uh, when you're in crisis, you have to do this. Mm -hmm. 
Um, one of the things, just just thinking about um, your comment there about making a garden. I was recently down in Melbourne, um, and I went to a cafe in Fitzroy. And um, this cafe, when I got the menu, the first page of the menu basically said menu, and underneath it, it had first of all, we'd really like to thank thank all of our biodynamic and organic suppliers. And it was a list. It was a huge, mm. a huge list. And I'm going, wow. Now, the comment that I'm going to make is the food. It wasn't just beautifully prepared, but the tomatoes were richer. They actually tasted like a tomato <laughs> rather than a red baggage of, of sod. You know, <laughs> you know how you taste mm. the difference? Yeah. Um, mm. the, you know, even the lettuce, there was a real bitterness to it. And it was just this, oh God, it was yummy. <laughs> mm. And I just think there's, I'm not saying there's no excuse, but, but even in urban environments, you can find the stuff. You can't say you yeah. can't find the stuff at all. If these cafes can make a, a business based on that. Yeah, there's a really good documentary on this and it's called Homegrown. And I think it's been out for, I remember watching it years and years ago. And it's about a, a father um, who was bringing up three children and he wasn't making it as far as getting food. So he produced um, this amazing garden in the middle of Los Angeles on a 600-square block and it fed his family in the end. He was able to um, figure out how to do it. It's just worth seeing that mm-hmm. sometimes we we look past that and all it needs is us to get out there for an hour, two hours and and plant this, or if you even if you do herbs, you know herbs are medicinal, and parsley grows like a they all grow like weeds. Yeah. They're, they're amazing, and even if you do that and put that into your salad, it's to me it's getting the nutrients that you need. Yeah, I, and I always, you know, everyone's taking supplements. Well, I would do a herb garden and cut my herbs every every day and be eating them, put them yeah. in a green smoothie if that's what you like, or put them in a salad, or you know, cook with them. Absolutely, uh, that's what I do every Absolutely. morning. I go out to my garden, pick all my herbs, pick my greenery, um, fry up my garlic and throw the greens in and then throw the eggs on top and it's it's made in five minutes and it gives me the nutrition I need, the protein I need. They're my eggs, by the way. I do have chickens as well. So I I have a real passion um, for this and it it could be because my father was, um, not my father, but my grandfather was a a corn farmer Mm. in Iowa, USA and he, he was a... He had two acres of organic companion moon-shaped garden. It was just absolutely amazing Mm, garden. mm. And I think maybe that's where the passion came from. Well, I think, you know, part of my, I don't know, love of of good food, if you like, I guess, was – you know, when I, I in my earlier years, I, I lived in Orange and, and coming from a farming family, if you like, my, my sister has this beautiful um, garden, a veggie garden, like you wouldn't believe. So, you know, she grows asparagus and the berries in the corner. The, and as you say, the food tastes different, but not only that, the food scraps get fed to the chooks and the chooks lay eggs like you wouldn't believe. Whereas I was visiting a mate just a couple of days ago and he's got a few chooks, five chooks. Uh, yeah, pretty rare eggs layers there, but it's a bare patch of ground. There's nothing there. You know, there's this, well, what are you feeding them so that they can give back to you? So it's this interesting quandary that he's in. Yeah. But um, Definitely. I, I got to have to, I have to touch on, you know, a major player in our food plate. And that is, you know, to the chagrin of so many naturopaths. And I'm still vacillating about where we go. I know we eat too much of it. I know we eat the wrong stuff, but wheat, bread. 
Mm. Now, I've spoken to David Perlmutter. He wants all bread, all wheat gone. I've spoken to Alessio Fasano, a bit of a bromance with that man, but um, I've spoken to him and he says, look, it's not about all wheat, but we should be thinking about what we do with the wheat. You know, it's all laced with glyphosate and, um, you know, we've got different genes and we make bread now too quickly. So can we discuss wheat? Because you've actually made a documentary, which we'll get onto in a tick. Let's talk about wheat first. What's the issue? What is the real crux of this? Wow. That's why I did the documentary, because there wasn't just one answer to it. Uh, I think there were major issues with it, but there wasn't just one answer. And and it all started for me uh, back about six years ago. I was starting to put on weight. I'm a person, like you said in the beginning, I've never had medications. I have eaten well all my life. I've eaten the same foods my whole life, organically as much as possible, made everything from scratch. So I'm getting into my, you know, into my late forties, early fifties, and I'm starting to gain weight, get aches and pains, sore back, sore hip, anxiety at three in the morning. And I'm starting to go, what what is wrong? What am I doing wrong? And I decided to do an elimination uh, that's based on the winter foods of the hunter gatherers. So I eat lean meat greenery and winter fruits. That's it. I didn't eat anything else. And I ate small amounts because they didn't have a lot of food back mm. then. And I noticed in that three-week period, I lost nine kilos in weight. And for the um, other people out there that do it in pounds, that's about 18 pounds of weight. I lost all my aches and pains, all my anxiety, unbelievable clarity of mind. And when I started to introduce foods back in, everything was going really really good. And mm. then I had a sourdough bread and I gained 700 grams overnight. That's a lot of water. It's not fat. That's yeah. water. Yeah. That says inflammation. I got all my aches and pains back and I went, well, what's wrong with wheat? Because doing cultural anthropology and understanding where wheat lays in our history and you know the change from being nomads to people who stayed in one place because we began the agricultural revolution, I was a little bit puzzled. And about a year later, Wheat Belly came out. A year or two later, Wheat Belly came out, and I read that, and then Grain Brain, and, yep. and so on and so on. And I started to read all the things that had, had done to eat. And I'd always been about, you know, have wheat on occasion, don't have it all the time, you know, don't have it for breakfast, lunch, morning tea, afternoon tea, and dinner. I was always about that, but I never took it out of my diet and I always ate organic. And then when I went through this whole discovery and I started back at the history of when we started to probably eat more wheat and that was back in the days of the 1920s when Kellogg's cornflakes came along and breakfast cereals and stable foods started. And so that was the first time that wheat made a, picked up a major... Um, production and and the amount of food that we ate of that had wheat in it, so um, that was the beginning. Then they fortified it, so they started to fortify it with you know vitamin Bs and minerals. But that fortification wasn't coming from natural foods; it no. was coming from chemical laboratories yeah. and, and out of the ground. So that was, and then folic acid that's now been you know added. Uh, to the bread that was added, I think, in Australia in oh, it was 2000, I think, and something, and that was mandatory in all bread except organic. Yeah. So there's a, a major issue there when we look at the active form versus the non-active form, but that's just part of the story. Mm. 
And and then in the 50s and 60s when Ansel Keys came about and fats were bad and carbohydrates were good, then we left more fats off the table and we started to eat more and more of the wheat. Wheat, wheat then became a huge part of our lives because they could make sugar out of wheat. So that's maltodextrous, dextrose, glucose. They can make vitamin C out of wheat. That's ascorbic acid. It, it starts with wheat. Uh, they they learnt um, how to, how to make stramet. I remember in, I li- I'm from Bendigo and stramet was huge and that was uh, the stalks of wheat were used in insulation. So you know that started to happen. Um, vitamins and minerals had wheat in it. We had wheat in medications. You know some medications where we're now realizing that that disease should not have any gluten had wheat in it. So. It was found in every corner of our lives. And we then had, you know, the hybridization of wheat, which was instigated by Norman Borlaug, uh, and that started in Pakistan and India. And all that was was just, you know, a monoculture that required fertilizers, pesticides, herbicides. And uh, it. And then I think what um, what really drove this was, that we started to realise that if we killed the wheat off three weeks before harvest, then there would be not as much stalk and there would be more grain and um, it would be easier to harvest. And what we killed it off with, and this is um, done in Australia, it's actually done on canola as well, not just wheat, it's done in the wetter areas of Australia as opposed to the drier areas. It's done throughout the US. Uh, and so they use um, Roundup or glyphosate as a desiccant to, to increase the, the yield. And so it all mm. came about, about yield. And so I found that what was happening is that not only were we eating more, we changed the genetic profile by the hybridization we changed where gluten was on the genome, uh, which is completely spelt out in the book uh, Wheat Belly by William Davy. Right. And then we put on that food that was being fed to our animals and to ourselves, we put on a, a herbicide that we now realise is probably the most destructive herbicide we have ever put in our soils, on our food, and now in our bodies. And indeed, it wrecks our microbiome. <laughs> it, well, it's an antibiotic. Yeah. That's what it is. And, yeah. and as you consume it, which you will be consuming it, because let's have a look. In 1998, 62,000 million kilos were sprayed worldwide. By 2014, uh. 758,000 million kilos were sprayed worldwide on sports grounds, on verges, on streets, on uh, golf courses, on agriculture from vineyards to peach trees to canola oil, wheat grain. Um, it's everywhere. Yeah. It's, it's become this non-regulated uh, ingredient that, um, or herbicide that, as Dr. Stephanie Sinek says, and I interviewed her for my documentary and I have to tell you as I interviewed him my jaw was on the floor mm. I was really upset now, wh- wh- went, what was this lady's name Dr Stephanie um, her name is Dr Stephanie Smith and she's out of MIT and she's a senior researcher 
And let me paint a picture of her. She's a mum of four children. She's a devoted wife. She um, loved her grandchildren. She was a computer scientist with a, a biology degree and, like, she just has degrees everywhere. And she noticed that autism was increasing. And when she started to see, as a computer scientist, started to see the exponential increase in autism, she said something's wrong. And so what she started to do was try and find association. Okay, what's increased since this year that's increased the exponential um, amount of, you know, autism that's happening? Mm. And she thought, she went through everything and all of a sudden she, she found an unbelievable cor- correlation with glyphosate. So once she'd found the correlation, she then went, well, how is it causing the problem? So she got into the biochemistry of it and what she found was that, number one, it's killing the microbiome. It's stopping the shikimate pathway, which is a pathway that the microbiome does, which produces our aromatic amino acids, which then in turn produces our neurotransmitters. She found that it down-regulated the liver in order to get rid of um, toxins and heavy metals. She found it chelated with our minerals, so we were losing um, precious minerals out of our body. She saw that um, because the shikimate pathway was stopped, it actually stopped fructose from being digested and therefore the fructose went down to you know, the large intestine and the bacteria started to consume the fructose, creating gas, um, maybe even moving up into the small intestine, into the, the lower part of the, uh, or the distal part of the small intestine, which we now um, call fructose malabsorption. And FODMAPs are huge at the moment. Everybody, like I just had a lady come up to me and um, I a talk and she came up to me and she said, you know, my gastroenterologist just put me on FODMAPs. And I went, wow, <laughs> no, I haven't heard that happening from a gastroenterologist. Mm. So, and I'm just giving you a very, very small snapshot of what she's found in the biochemistry of it. She sees that uh, glyphosate also combines with um, tissue transglutaminase and, gl- and gluten or gliadin, and she believes that those three get into the blood system due to um, the integrity of the uh, intestinal lining being broken and allowing it to get in. And she thinks that's a huge allergenic molecule that has a lot to do with non-celiac gluten sensitivity and um, autoimmune diseases. Right. So can I just clear up something in my mind? So the shikimate pathway yes. is not active in humans because it's a bacteria, fungal, algal type thing, yeah? Plant, but, but yeah. yeah. So it's it's acting on the plant so that they can't synthesize um, yes. certain amino, amino acids, acids and then that affects us. So I'm thinking here about neurotransmitters, tyrosine, tryptophan. Well, so you've got tyrosine, tryptophan and phenylalanine that's produced by the shikimate pathway. Yeah, yeah. Each of them are the precursors to... Our neurotransmitters. Neuro, yeah. But remember, tyrosine is also the precursor, or the not the precursor, but required for T3, T4 with SD3. Every cell in the body needs tyrosine and 3-iodine or 4-iodine or whatever, you know, the, what Four, we're yeah, looking T3, at yeah, there yeah. in order to work. To You know, it, it requires that one's in storage and one's active. And if you don't have tyrosine, you can't make it. And look at the amount of thyroid issues we're now seeing. Um, Stephanie's also, she, she emails me a lot, like, um, because I'm always emailing her and saying, 
oh my gosh, look what I just found out. And she'll email me, email me back and she'll say, I've just realized that I think glyphosate is replacing glycine in the amino acid chain. And she's finding glyphosate in gelatin because glyphosate's putting itself um, in the glyph in the amino acid chain within our collagen, within our um, our bones. And so when we're when gelatin's being made or you're making bone broth or you're using bones, and if they're not organic, the possibility of small amounts of glyphosate being in there. And I, I remember this um farmer's wife who was really angry at me. She was a blogger. She was really angry at me for producing the film What's With Wheat. And, you know, her father, her, her, her husband was a wheat farmer and used glyphosate. And she said, we only use one can, like like a Coke can, yep. of glyphosate per acre of wheat. And How often? I felt like going back to one can full of glyphosate per acre of wheat. Yeah. And I felt like going back to her and saying, well, we only need 150 micrograms of iodine to make the body run per day. Yeah. So don't tell me that yeah. one can of glyphosate is okay on an acre of, you know, of, of wheat. Well, it's affecting our body. Well, let's say it was one can of, uh, of um, botulinum toxin. So it, doesn't that, doesn't, isn't that um, dependent on how toxic it is rather than the volume that it is? Um, mm-hmm. I, I mean, my dad tells me a story of um, this old agricultural rep that used to come down the farm and he swished... Uh, dildren round in a can with his hands. He said, look, as safe as houses this is. <laughs> and and I still to this day, like I don't know how much dad took it on. He wasn't much given to um, herbicides and pesticides, but he would just shook his head at this bloke. <laughs> and he just, he just said, you're mad. He, he, and this was back in the like 60s. Uh, just said, you're mad. But if, you look at, if you look at DDT in the 19, it, it started um, – being sprayed in the US, I'm not sure of the Australian um, or when it started in Australia, but in the US it was sprayed between 1945 and 1955. And there was advertising showing them spraying swimming pools um, with kids in it. Mm. They were spraying DVP everywhere saying how safe it was. And, you know, we realised that it was a severe neurotoxin that gave symptoms very similar to polio. So it was not safe in no. any stretch of the imagination. And yet, and now, and, you know, Monsanto uh, is saying that, you know, it's only stopped the shikimate pathway, therefore it's not a problem to humans. And I, lo- I love Dr. Stephanie Seneff, and, and she um, also has a, a co you know, somebody that works with her, another scientist that works with her, I was going to say conspirator, but <laughs> <laughs> that's what everybody thinks he is. But his name is Anthony Samsell, and he, he was looking at where does glyphosate go and how is it getting into our body. And with him and um, mums across America, they did some research where they got the vaccines and sent them to be tested um, because he believed that Gelatin is used, well, it is, it's not a belief, it's a, it, we know this, that gelatin is used for cultures as well as egg yolk as yep. well as um, bovine. And yep. he kind of started to think, could it be in the vaccines? And so he, he got the, so a couple of vaccines, not all of them, but just a couple of vaccines that he knew they used gelatin or egg or bovine on. And he had them tested using, and you and I say this differently, I know, I call it the ELISA, but you call it the ELISA. Oh, yeah. Um, Different school. Tests, which, 
Yeah, different schools. So it's a, it's a preliminary test um, to see if something's contaminated. And it's a preliminary test. And we do more testing if we find that there are traces within the water supply or whatever um, the medium it's in, we then do more tests. And, and, um, and I've looked at the criticism about finding the, and it's, it's parts per billion that they're finding in the, the, um, the vaccine. But I've looked at the criticism and nobody's not denying it. They're just talking about the test, saying it's not accurate. Well, mm. if it's not accurate, but we're still finding parts per billion, don't you think it would be feasible that we maybe need to really test this and maybe look at this? Yeah. Because maybe they need to be using organic gelatin, organic eggs, and so that it's not contaminated. Mm. It's it's simple. It's not hard to do this. Yeah, this so, is, and this is the issue. I, I agree with you there. It's like, um, don't disagree with it. Just distract from the issue, and and that yeah. I mean, look, conspiracy theorist, whatever. There's two sides to it. One is, you know, are you a conspiracy theorist? The conspiracy theorist will tell me, well, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean you're not being followed. So, so the fact of the matter is that we know big business governments. They don't necessarily. Um, disagree or deny, what they do is they distract from the issue. So I agree totally with you. If it might, could possibly in any way be an issue, shouldn't they be as a safety mechanism be testing this or looking into it, at least at the very least, to be able to refute it? And the fact that they're not rings alarm bells with me. <laughs> but one, yeah. other, one other thing I picked up on, and forgive me for going back a little while, but you were just talking about tyrosine in the shikimate pathway. You're talking about neurotransmitters and things like that. You know what else that I've twigged that tyrosine has an important sort of accessory pathway in the manufacture of? Coenzyme okay. Q10. Um, so it's not just HM coenzyme, co HMG coenzyme A and the mavalonate pathway, but tyrosine has this accessory pathway. Um, so I just, it's, a, it's just a, you know, just a ponderance. There and I just yeah, wonder. It's a, if, it's a great ponderance. Yeah, that's how you know your hydroxybenzoates go into making CoQ10. Yeah. Um, and you know what is interesting is when you start to look at pathways and you see, like, let's take the methylation um, pathway that's in cells, not yep. the DNA, but in cells. And methionine um, is one of the the main amino acids that needs to come in there. And one of the things that uh, Dr. Stephanie Sinest has indicated with glyphosate is that methionine is being um, stopped by glyphosate. So, you know, you then uh -huh. have to go, you know, we're all on about this MTHFR methylation. or the MTRR or the COMT or whatever is in that methylation pathway and the SNPs in the, in the genetic profiles of people. You have to wonder, if, would we have ever found these if we hadn't had methionine missing? And if we had methionine, would then the cycle go well? You yeah. know, like I, I just... I look at everything yeah. um, regarding that. And the shikimate pathway is, if you have a look at it, that's where you see in the, in the, the methylation cycle, you actually see where um, the, the, um, sorry, the neurotransmitters are produced mm. in the methylation cycle. Mm. So I think while we are complicating this whole issue by looking at biochemistry and, and things like that, I think it comes down to we have to go back to uh, the foods that were produced 
in an organic way. So look at gelatin. There's no way that, and I use a lot of gelatin in my home. There's no way I would use anything but organic gelatin. Um, as far as wheat goes, I would never use the new strain of wheat, but I would consider using the old heritage strains of wheat. Uh, so I'm very much now into looking at how do I find the best quality foods that I can be. And I don't think that it's possible now to get completely organic. The way I see my council spray glyphosate um, around on verges, on sports grounds and uh, and down waterways, yeah. I'm just not sure that it's, it's possible anymore. But let's at least not saturate ourselves because – Glyphosate is something that builds up in the system and creates more and more havoc. So the less you can be exposed to, the better. Yeah. And so take the path that we know works, which is we know that our bodies are capable of using these foods that it's used for 1.5, 2 million years while we evolved from Homo habilis to Erectus to Sapien. And we've only had these issues that we see now um, raise their uh, ugly heads, I guess, in, mm. in the last couple of decades, and really in the last two decades. And again, it's the like um, glyphosate is the, the perfect example of the perfect commercialism, isn't it? You know, you need our thing to thrive and you can't thrive without it because it won't let you because <laughs> so there's this whole there's this whole sort of quandary about you need to buy this stuff off us. What, what was interesting about um, what you said about the ancient wheats is that and, and it goes back to right at the beginning how I said you base your stuff on science and it's just like, well, hang on, how, have a look at this. So here's something for the doubting Thomases out there. Ancient genes to protect modern wheat. Now, this is the University of Queensland from 29th of March 2016. This will be out at Gatton. So outside of uh, the west of Brisbane towards Toowoomba, scientists from the University of Queensland are undertaking the first, the world first research into ancient wheats to ensure the crop's future. And what they're talking about is the genetic diversity of ancient grain strains of, of wheat could hold the key to protecting against diseases in modern wheat. And this is beautiful, i got to say. But how will that, I mean, to me, like one of the issues is yield, you know, because of our population explosion, we now, we now demand more bread. So we need more wheat per kernel, more, more kernels per shaft of wheat. So therefore, humans are the, are the um, you know, the cause of our own demise, if you like. How do we then access these sorts of ancient grains? Like I mentioned, uh, you mentioned one that you'd accessed um, down in Melbourne, correct? Yes, down in um, Country Victoria. Country there. Victoria. And, and there was different... Yeah, Country Victoria. And you were calling them different names. Yeah. So einkorn is what we call a monoploid, which means that we know that that was the first grain that ever surfaced on the planet as far as the wheat grain goes. So um, in it... Uh, was about 23,000 years ago. So it's called einkorn, and it's spelled E-I-N-K-O-R-N. Oh, right, so, right. Yeah. So then about, they reckon about 17,000 years ago, einkorn crossed with another grass naturally, and it became a diploid. So there were, you know, it's not like us where our chromosomes never, you know, we don't change our chromosomes. In plant species, they become, you know, monoploids, diploids, and then you know um, who was the original versus 
you know, what's been modified. So it, it, that was then um, called Emma Wheat, and that's E-M-M-E-R. And then it, it continues down to, I think, Spelt was about 5,000 years ago, 10,000 years ago with Kamut. And we became, as agriculturalists, we realised how we could cross-wheat, um, in, in, and that was hybridisation. Yeah. But what they're doing now with hybridisation is that they're using a chemical and, and um, BASF is the um, chemical company that uses a chemical in order to create hybrids that don't necessarily naturally hybridise. And um, it's called Clearfield Wheat. And to me, this is the scariest wheat of all. Right. So we're, what I'm saying is let's go back to the diploid or the monoploid, which is einkorn and emmerwet. Now, when I was looking for it, because I, I have an organic um, food um, range, and the reason I have this range is because people would say to me, okay, so you talk about this stuff all the time. You know, you talk about this salt and you talk about um, all, all of these things, all these foods, we don't know where to find them. And I guess I did it for myself first. I, I found where I could source the right foods that were organically certified for my pantry. And then I have just shared it with whoever wants it, I guess. I just say, hey, guys, I found it. This is what the research I did behind it and this is how I found it. And I remember looking for an ancient wheat when I started on this journey. And I found one near your hometown, Orange, but they were using Roundup. Pre-planting, not yep. after planting, right. but it still could it's not still, be yeah. organically certified. Yeah. I, I didn't want it, and it was iron corn. It was our twenty-three thousand year old wheat. So the next one that I found was in England, and we actually imported it from England, which I know is food miles and everything like that. But I couldn't find an organic source here, mm-hmm. and it ended up that coming from England to Australia, we got a confused beetle <laughs> in the wheat. Oh. <laughs> so um, we gave it to an organic food supplier for animals um, and they used it. You know, we lost tons and tons of wheat and we went, okay, well, it's just not possible. We can't do it. And then I always ask the universe, and I know this sounds esoterical, but I do. I go, right, there has to be somebody in Australia that has a passion for this. Yeah. And one day I was, I don't know, I was um, looking at a gro- in a grocery store in, in Bright, um, and it wasn't a grocery store, it was a health food store in Bright, and I'm, I'm reading all the weeks and I'm like going, oh, my gosh, this is egg wheat. Where's this coming from? It's coming from Victoria. Wow. And so I rang the farmer. Yeah. I got his phone number and I rang him and I just went, would you have five ton for me? <laughs> so, <laughs> five ton? Um, yeah, I wanted five ton because that's how I could sell that easily um, in a 12-month period. So what he does for me now is that we only grind the grain. Yeah. Um, in three-month batches. So he holds it for me and I get it in three-month batches as we need it because after three months, I've still got the germ in there, I've still got the bran in there. I don't take anything out. Mm. So it will go off. So we just take it in small batches and whereas a whole grain, it has its own preservation. So, um, But, of course, that's another thing that um, our wheat farmers do here in Australia is that they gas it in the silos with phosphine. Yeah, and phosphorine, I think it is, which has its own set of problems. Even though people say, "Oh, it's only so many parts per billion, Cindy, don't worry about it," and um, I just I can't go there. I, I'm like, 
well, I'm sorry, until you can show me it's safe, instead of saying it's only so many parts per billion, I won't be going there. Yeah. It, it's so an interesting. I found him. It's an interesting double standard. This, um, forgive me, I'm trying to form this picture in my brain. If you had um, the same sorts of things happening with, let's say, a herbal medicine, so let's say carver, what happened with carver got taken off the market in the sort of um, early 2000s. Um, and if you had that exact same issue with a drug, let's say paracetamol, Paracetamol still be on the market. Carver's off. Exactly the same thing mm. happened. So, you know, my example here is going to be pan pharmaceuticals. Pan pharmaceuticals made a very rarely used antidepressant. But the, med the message from the TGA was stop taking your vitamins and return them, but continue to take that antidepressant, despite the fact that it was a drug that was found to have a disparity of... Um, of dosage levels, if you like, within the, the ingredient levels, forgive me, in each dosage, in each tablet. It, no vitamin was found that. It was a drug, Travacalm. So it was just, it's really interesting, this double standard that occurs. And it's where I'm going with this is it's really hard to get something off the market. You've got to have, it's not compelling, you've got to have solid evidence because it's almost like a legal thing, isn't it? So, uh, you know, it's like, it's, it's a real shame that we have to go through this to have to prove something is really damaging before they'll do anything about it. Yeah. Well, you know, we see this all the time. Um, you look at Bayer, who um, have taken a bid for Monsanto at $66 billion, uh -huh. And you look at their past and the strength of $66 billion, You know, carbon's never going to make that much money. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, but Bayer, um, you know, they had a, a statin drug that was causing death. Mm. And... It took, I think, quite a long time before that finally was removed from the market. Yeah. yeah. And um, and I look at the, I, I just, I just think that um, we live in a world where um, money speaks, yeah. and as an individual, I can't fight that. I don't have sixty-six billion to fight that. But what I do have is, I am an individual that is able to make my own decisions yeah. about what I put my money into. And I think it's an awareness and a knowledge about these companies and about food and about um, what is really happening out there that educates you enough to make powerful decisions that can change the course of history. And while I feel, and I, I've said this to you, Andrew, but while I feel that I'm merely at the moment just sorting the deck chairs on the Titanic. Mm. That's how I feel. I think there's a gaping big hole in the Titanic and we're all going down unless we start to address that gaping big hole. And the way I address it is that I choose to um, become knowledgeable, educated about what is happening out there and who owns what company and what sprays are being sprayed on my food and how are vitamins and minerals made and what medication may have gluten in it that may be affecting um, a disease that somebody is trying to, you know, get rid of or treat even, and yet it's multiplying that effect. And as as we do this, I think as a crowd, uh, we will start to change what's happening out there. But most people have blinkers on. Most yeah. people aren't even thinking this way. They're not realising that there's more happening out there and, um, 
and we have to start spending a little bit more money on better foods, understanding how they're produced and saying no to these big corporations that don't really care. I don't know how they don't realise they're doing it to themselves as well. Oh, most of us, I mean, I look, I had blinkers on for decades. Cindy, practicalities, people need to change and they need to change their habits before they change their life. That's in your book. All of this stuff that we've spoken about is in your book, right? Well, Changing Habits, Changing Lives, I did in 1998. I wrote that in 1998. And the information for somebody who's starting on their journey is still very, very relevant because it's just about how's breakfast cereal made? What's a different alternative? What do they do to their own milk? What's a different alternative? How is our salt refined? What do they add to it? What's a different alternative? So someone starting on this journey, which... I'm just not sure that they are the people that are listening in on this. I'm not sure who your listeners, but I have a feeling that they're probably a little bit more advanced than that. But they still need to know. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of people that don't know where things come from. Actually, you know what? You are so right. I went, um, I spoke recently at a, and I'm not going to say the conference that it was, but it was a health professional conference. These were people that were very knowledgeable about um, the human body, about supplementation, about herbs and, and things like that. And I got given a gift. The gift was chocolate. The chocolate had soya lecithin in it, yeah. flavours, yeah. colours. Yeah. And I was I went, hang on, you guys should never have given me this. <laughs> this should not even be on your shopping list. Mm. <laughs> let alone give it as a gift to a nutritionist who is, you know, can tell you where soy lecithin comes from and what a flavour is. It's 48 chemicals. So, yeah, you're right. People need to know the basics and even the health professionals out there need to know these basics. But taking it a step further is why I did the documentary What's With Wheat because what I did was I concentrated on one food yeah. and, and talked about what has happened to these one foods and um, – this one food, and and the end of the documentary, I actually say the story of wheat is the story of food, mm. and we need to become educated and and wise and and make better choices. Mm. I, I'll I'll hear hear you that the the story of wheat is the story of food. I was actually going to make reference earlier to um, a paper that's just been released. Um, in um, now, I keep saying New England Journal of Medicine. It's not. It's JAMA, so the Journal of the American Medical Association. And it's called Sugar Industry and Coronary Heart Disease Research, a Historical Analysis uh-huh. of Internal Industry Documents. Now, I, mm. I'll, I'll just urge every health practitioner to look that up. We'll be putting it up on the FX Medicine website. And we'll also put Changing Habits, Changing Lives and your new, document, your new documentary up there, as well as some of the other authors that we've spoken about today. So, you know, it'll certainly give practitioners a lot of food for thought. Aha. Sorry, I had to put that in. <laughs> <laughs> and also, I um, have watched with Wheat on um, Facebook, and we actually put that article up. Oh, great. Um, and I think I put it up on the Changing Habits Facebook. Like, whatever I can do to educate people and, um, and read this information, I think is, is just so important. And that's what you do with, you know, this podcast. I, I, like, I've only just started listening to Andrew, and I'm absolutely loving it. Just your information, the calibre of your guests. Um, I feel very humbled that I'm there with you. Well, thank you. You know what? I'll agree with you on one thing. It's the calibre of my guests, and you are one of those, Cindy. 
Um, I just, I've, I've got to say, I feel so blessed in my job. I am the luckiest bloke on earth because I get to suck the living daylights out of all the minds, <laughs> of all the greatest minds on earth. And it's truly an honour. So thank you so much for joining us on FX Medicine today and taking us through these very controversial but very, very important issues for our, what we shove in our mouths every day, food. Yeah, definitely. So, Cindy, thank you so much for sharing your wealth of knowledge to our listeners on FX Medicine today. Truly, humbly, thank you. Thank you. This is FX Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. This is Andrew from FX Medicine. We thank you so much for your support over the last two years. We'd really love to remain clinically relevant to your practice. So if you know of an expert in some area, please let us know. You can contact us on fxmedicine.com.au, Facebook or Twitter. 